Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording of Rabbi Adam Klickfeld's weekly Rashi study class. We are in chapter three of the book of Shmot, and um, I believe we are on verse nine, sorry, verse eight. Uh, last week, we read verse seven. There was one uh, small Rashi on it, and then we're going to have a few, we had a few verses of of a silent Rashi before the verse we read last week. And then we're going to have a few verses of silent Rashi after that. Maybe we'll see if the other commentators have things to, to say. So just to go backwards one verse, which is our, our pattern, just to get some uh, momentum in verse seven, we read by Omer Adonai, God said, Ra'iti, verily have I seen <coughs> et oni ami, the impoverishment of my people, Asher b'Mitzrayim who are in Egypt, I've heard their cries from or as a result of their taskmasters. Uh, interestingly, that, um, that word is an interesting word. <clears throat> For I have, um, I have known, I paid attention to their pain and this notion of the um, singular or plural there, right? So since Ami is singular, it's really ought to be translated as um, I heard their cries, sa'akatam, from its taskmasters, as if the, the am is a singular, and I have known really its pains. Mach'ovav uh, is the plural noun, but the singular uh, possessive pronoun, mach'ovav. Uh, and that brings us to verse eight, and we're in, still in the middle of God's soliloquy here. Um, in this initial uh, encounter with Moshe at the burning bush. Were there any lingering thoughts or questions before we jump into this verse? Going once, going twice. Okay. Uh, Joanna, do you want to read verse uh, eight? Sure. I have come down to rescue them from the Egyptians and to bring them out of that land to a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the region of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Good. Did you, you want it read that? in Hebrew also? Yeah, that would be great. Va'ered lehatilo miad mitraim ul ha'aloto min ha'aret tahi el eretz tova urchava el eretz zavat chalav udvash. El makom haknaani vehachiti vehaemori vehaprizi vehachivi vehaivusi. Good. Okay. So God now uh, starts articulating the next part of the plan. There's there's a descent, the uh, ered from the Yarad. There's a saving lahatzilo. There's a bringing up lahaloto um, from the land that there are in to this new land, which is being described in interesting ways. It's being described as tova. Whatever tova means, I've given several different Devei Torah that suggest that whatever the word tova, tova means in Hebrew, it, it, it's not the English good. There's no way that the English good can possibly encapsulate what tova, tova means. It's also being described as rechava. Rachav means normally wide or spacious. We can go into that a little bit. Um, it's also being described as zavat chalabudvash. You all know the song. 
Um, but we can we can go slow through that to try to actually figure out what that those words right what uh, words might mean. Zavat is usually understood to be here um, kind of a, a gerund like flowing with a zav zayin bet or zayin vav bet is a flow. In the book of Ayikra, it's the flow of bodily fluids from different parts of the body that might make someone tame, right? A zav or a zava. So here, it's 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 a it's a use of the word flow that is, for lack of a better word, parav or banal. It's literally just flowing. It's flowing with chalav, milk, right? We can we can question what kind of milk is being referred to here, and dvash, uh, which is understood to be honey. Most commentators understand that this description is not bee honey. But um, silan, right? The, the 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 kind of honey that drips from very very um, robust and juicy dates, uh, and then it's described something else about this uh, place, uh, a, 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 something which dogs, you know, the, the, that this square square mileage of the planet and every square mileage of the planet forever, which is who were the original occupants, right? To a place that is currently or once was, depending on how you how you time. When this is being articulated, it's a place of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Emirates and the Prizites and the Chivites and the Jebusites, right? There's a lot going on in this chunky verse. Um, the vocabulary isn't particularly hard, but there's some places that are, in, that are worthy of asking questions. So um, as uh, on, like clockwork, there are already some questions. So I saw the order Tova, Diane Larry, and Marshall. So Tova, please. Uh, okay, uh, I'm loving this verse, and I, I particularly like the um, contrast that it sets up. You know, from the very beginning, it's got the va'ered, God descends in order to bring us up out of, and that could be a lot of things. I mean, it could be, we generally think of going north as being up and northwards, though that was not how the Egyptians thought for them going north was going down. Right. Uh, but also it could be lifting us up spiritually. So God comes down, approaches us in some ways to lift us up spiritually. And then Eretz, Tova, or Hava, a broad land from Mitzrayim, the narrow land. Right. And again, not just a geographical difference, but a place of a narrowness for our spirits to a place of broadness for our spirits. So it's really lovely. <laughs> yeah, wonder, wonderful comment, Tove. This the geometry of this verse is interesting. It's been a while now, but we discussed the geometry of the Yosef story and the descent into Egypt and right. the, the undulations of up and down. So this is a, a descent, seemingly, I suppose, supposed to imagine as you know, from heavens to earth, and then an ascent, not from earth to heavens, but from kind of hell on earth to heaven on earth. Right. right. Interestingly. Uh, Rashi is quiet on the on the verse. Several commentaries on the page, which we're not going to look at closely, but you should, you should, if you're on in our book, you can take a quick glance. Um, translate or render va'ered having to do with um, a revelation. Uh, oh, a, a, right. a, um, it, rather than read it as an actual descent, mm-hmm. which is another understanding of revelation, or it's the reason for the descent is to re- reveal oneself. And it's interestingly interesting to me that if you look at the Unculus here, Unculus was again a translator, not a commentator for the most part, translates Va'ered as Ve'it Galeti, I revealed myself. Mm-hmm. So th- th- there's something happening in the, in the rabbinic and medieval um, definitions or translations of this word that, that, either are resisting 
reading it as a dissent for reasons that we can uh, think about, or they're in that place where I'm not changing what the word means. I'm just changing how my, my understanding or the interpretation of the word is supposed to mean. Um, I love what you said about comparing Mitzrayim to Rechava, right? The, the, the narrow places to the width. Also, um, at least on the modern map, it would be interesting to try to imagine how they saw their map. Yeah. Geographically, it's actually the opposite because at least, you know, the, the, the kingdom of Egypt is a rather wide geographic kingdom, whereas the place that they're going to, certainly between the Mediterranean right. and the sea, is, ge- is um, geographically or cartographically narrow, right? Um, so we can spend more time thinking about that as well. Good. Thank you for those comments. Um, I was going to say it's also going from a valley, though, a valley to hills, because the original was Judean hills. So I don't know if there's that sense of, of up also. But. Yeah. Okay. Great. So I see six other hands up. Uh, is any, any of these hands are focusing on the word rechava? Because if not, I want to say something else on that word. But I want to hear your thoughts about it first. So the Abarbanel um, on the word rechava says what's going on here. How, why is rechava um, worthy of a second adjective after tova? Like, isn't tova a catch-all? It, it's a great land. So it's great and it's wide. Big deal. The Barbanel says that that for all of Egypt, Egypt's um, wonders and the fertility of the land around the, of the Nile, its wonders, its toveness, were constrained to a narrow strip, just that area on either side of the Nile. Whereas in the fantasy, everywhere you go, right? We know that I never promised you a rose garden, but in the fantasy, in the land of Israel, it's not only that there's tove there, there's, there's goodness and the richness, and not that it is particularly wide, but its toveness is wide. That it's 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 a widespread um, goodness, uh, which is in contradistinction to Egypt's narrow, focused, uh, fertile area. Um, again, whether he's uh, right on a agronomic level, I'm not sure, but that's his understanding for why rechaba is added to tova. Larry, Diane. <clears throat> so I'm glad that tova liked it. <laughs> I don't like this this pasuk at all. Um, I'll think, register that with the authorities. Don't worry. Don't you worry. I think it has a lot of problematic um, elements. The first is God's coming down. I don't know that we've ever, up till now, ever had the image of God coming down from heavens, where all of our fantasies, the modern fantasies, have God sitting up in the throne of heavens and. The God that we're talking about is a God who is everywhere. So how is he coming down? It's, just, mm-hmm. it's, it's very disturbing, and I would even say out of place. And I think that that's the reason why Uncle, a lot of the commentators, I noticed that Sadia Gaon and Rambam both comment on the same thing <clears throat> without reading the, uh, their commentaries. Secondly, this seems out of place to me. This just seems a completely different language than we've had up to now. God should have said... He's already said, I'm the God of your forefathers, and I'm going to free your people and take them back to the land of the forefa- your forefathers. He doesn't say that. What he says instead is, I'm going to take you to the specific land, all right? And he then cites who's living on the land. This is like a deed. This is like the claim, proof text, or one of the proof texts that that's our land, and we get it. And I'm, I'm hypothesizing with no basis at all. This was stuck in later on. This is one of these phrases that 
I think there's got to be some critical Bible theorist who says it's not part of the original. It was stuck in afterwards as a further proof that this is going to be our land. But it just doesn't seem to me that it flows with the rest of the text. I have I have no beef with the notion that of, of the editorial layers. Just on a on a logical level, doesn't this verse undermine the deed because it names rather specifically that there were indigenous people there? How does that support the notion of the deed? Because God has actually given us claim to the land. I mean, that's that's always been the problematic question about when people say that uh, we've been given the land in the. In the uh, in, in in the Bible, speaking um, uh, to other other people, but we said God gave it to us from the Canaanites. So you're right; it, it's it's problematic, but that didn't seem to bother anybody. Uh-huh. Um, we we were never there first to begin with. Even when Abraham, if we want to claim Abraham as our original uh, you know forefather, didn't. Uh, he, he already was encountered people there, so right. I mean, j- j- just to to linger a little bit long on that, and then we can leave. For the most part, no one was anywhere first, right? Um, if you go back far enough, there were there was there was usually someone else there. There was an interesting um, um, letter to the editor in today's LA Times responding to San Francisco's um, stripping the names of high schools, including. Um, you know, not, not only segregationists and and, um, and you know, abject slaveholders, but um, but Lincoln, but, but Lincoln's name is no longer going to be acceptable in San Francisco. And the letter, with with a certain amount of I think earned snarkiness, said, "We're looking forward to when San Francisco will change the name of the city back to the name of the city it was before the um, you know the, uh, the the missionaries took it over." And um, and we'll be, we'll be raising the, the flag of, of of Mexico over the state over, over that city, right? It was it was it's, there's always a, a legitimate reason to claim that someone was there beforehand. Um, it's interesting that you're you're picking up on this is the way that God is naming to Moshe what is what is special about um, this land. There is something about the quality of the land that's special, and and yet the, the, the people to whom the land is attached is not, as you said, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but the other folks who are there, almost, almost as if it's like, you know, pre- predicting whatever battle is going to happen. But it is an interesting lack of credentialing the land as the place where the people who are now enslaved actually um, had their roots. Um, so fascinating. Um, Marshall, and then Rick, and then Barry, and then Joanna, and then Joel, if I can remember that order. Uh, you're very, very soft, Marshall. Can, be, can you speak a little bit louder or speak into the mic? Better now? Yes, much. Thank you. Okay, sorry. I don't know if Rick was going to make this comment, but I'll make it now. You look at the tropes itself. We start with a Girshayim, which is a disjunctive trope. The next word is a, a Munach, which is a Munach Lagarme, which is also disjunctive. So we're doing Va'ered, Lo. And then we have Munach again, which there becomes conjunctive there. So that, that's one item. So we're pausing between the first word and the second word and the next two words, number one. Number two, if you look at the word miyad, uh, that is sort of a foreshadowing where God says, mm-hmm. uh, I will take God, I will take 
people out from Egypt with a strong hand and outstretched arm. So God says, you know, you think you have a yod? Well, I have a yod also, and my yod is very, very powerful. Great. Thank you for both of those comments. Uh, the, the, the musical rhythm at the beginning of the verse, and, and we, we didn't, as we were translating and, ling- and, and looking at the verse, we kind of jumped over the, the presence of the yod there. A very helpful comment. Uh, I already forgot who I said was next. Rick? Excellent, Marshall. So taking, taking up where he left off, um, lately I've been noticing uh, directionality with trope <clears throat> going up and down with the scale with the music. Sometimes it matches the words. So miad mitzrayim, so that's God coming down to Egypt. And then uhaloto is it down, the zarka on uhaloto, minaretz hahi is coming back up. So um, it, it, it's that kind of thing too. That's all. Yeah. Although it's interesting that if, if you really want to play that out, that the, the zarka goes farther down than the mitzrayim, except that the zarka is on the word that is going up. <laughs> yes, right. With the angels going, uh, the olim v'yordim, right? The angels going up and down. I thought of that too, that it doesn't exactly match, but the the the, the play of God coming down and, and us coming out, um, like going into the sea and coming up and all that, yeah. um, generally the flow was like that. Va'ered also, the gershaim goes up twice, but the word means I'm going to go down, so that, it doesn't fit there. But I thought it fit nice on Uhalo To Min Mina Aretzaki. Well, now that you're lingering on it, the two words in the verse that suggest upness or downness yes. are on musical notes that are the inverse of yeah. their directionality, which could mean nothing or not nothing. But the angels go up and down. It's or Olim. Why are they Why are they going up first and then down? So it's that circular kind of thing <laughs> on the ladder, you know. Uh, Barry. So yeah, just a couple of comments. So yeah, we we, we have had uh, uh, the up and down as Rick just mentioned previously in the Yaakov story. So this is not the first time we have up and down uh, with God. Um, I'm really interested in the translation of Ered uh, rather than direction. Is uh, I'm sorry, what, what was the translation, Rabbi, that you gave? Uh, it's becoming known. The way it's translated in the Uncleus and the way it's commented on by some of the medieval commentators is a revelation. Revelation, like it becoming real. So, um, so God's God God's being everywhere in the world, spiritually speaking, now will become known in the real world. The aspects of God's God's hand will become revealed in in phenomena that we see that we recognize. Yeah. And uh, this, this is what's unique. Uh, uh, we haven't had this before. Uh, God's being revealed in manners that uh, we see uh, in the real world. Yeah. Great. Thank you, Barry. I'm not sure if we mentioned this or if this was already in people's mind as we were looking at it, but va'ered is a vav ha'ipuch, which means that it's, it should be understood as a past tense. So it's actually not that I will go down, but that I went down. Right? Mm-hmm. Even though ered means I will go down, mm-hmm. va ered I I went I went down, which is another interesting thing because depending on how we understand the coming down, has this happened yet? Right? Uh, Everett Fox translates it like this: So I have come down to rescue it. He's very precise about um, 
singular or plural, and it's lahatsilo, and lo is not them, that would be lahatsilam, to rescue it, the people, from the hand of Egypt, to bring it up from that land, to a land, comma, goodly and spacious, tovarachava, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanite, Hittite, Amorite, Prezite, Hivite, and Yibusite. So the way he translates it honorably to the tense that in verse eight, what is happening has what was being described as what's already happened. And then we're going to get to God's telling Moshe what he should do to what's going to happen next. But the, a red has already happened. Um, Vered, Joanna, Joel, Rebecca. Okay. Sorry. Good morning. Um, so a, a couple of uh, observations. The Vaered follows what everything was mentioned in the previous Pasuk Zain, in which God says, I saw and I heard and I understand and I know and I've decided to interfere. So Vayered doesn't mean literally I went down, but after reviewing kind of, let's say, and, and hearing and seeing and understanding, well, it's now time to take action, to interfere. Mm-hmm. And I am going to save them, to help them. But my main um, observation has to go with the word halav, which the word halav means actually, as we all know, milk. But the idea behind it is that the land is very fertile. It's a good land. Such a good land that uh, flocks on cows can eat and then produce the milk. And not only that, but it was a place that other nations sustained themselves. They were living there. The place was fertile and they lived there. All those nations lived there. Aknanin, uh, you know, all, all that list of, of people. I am going to bring them to the same place that all those nations lived and and sustained themselves, made a living, and also hinting that it's going, it's ain't going to be easy because people live there. And there's going to be a battle, it's going to be a war, it's going to be a fight, you know, to get this place for themselves. Yeah, great. Thank you for that, um, Vered. Interestingly, on this, on, on this notion of how we're really supposed to understand what is clearly a, um, a, a metaphor as opposed to a precise description, right? E- even, e- even if you accept every word of Torah as, as directly having come from Sinai, Sinai the, the image of Zavat Chalabudvash is, cannot possibly be understood to be li- literally word for word, right? What does it mean to flow? You're suggesting that it suggests a kind of a productivity, productivity and ease, right? The, the opposite, uh, that when when God expels Adam v'chavah from the Garden of Eden, the prophecy is that they're they're going to produce good from the land only with backbreaking labor, right? Whereas the land of Israel, 
Um, and, and, the, and what the Israelites have been experiencing in Egypt is vayavidu bafarech, right? That the yes. Egyptians worked them harder than they needed to be worked to and they still produce less of it. Is, the land of Israel will be the exact opposite, just abundance without hard work. Uncle does something very interesting on that word too. He does not translate zavat into an Aramaic word that means to flow. He translates it as avda, producing. La'ara avda chalav udvash. He kind of takes the metaphor out and says it more plainly. This is a land that is almost just constantly producing without your having to work for it the milk from your animals and the whatever sweet things the Devash is supposed to represent. It's a little bit less lyrical the way Uncle does it and probably what the verse is trying to get us to understand in our minds. And uh, also just yeah. the last thing, the word Devash can be understood like we said, you know, the fruits of the palm trees or whatever, but also can be symbolic that everything will be sweet. The fruits yeah. will be sweet. They will be good and there will be enough for all the animals to eat and produce milk. Yeah. And if you've ever been like, I don't know, in the, in the, in the, in the Galil and you walked through, um, you know, groves of, of date trees, uh, there's a, like the ground can get sticky in a certain season with so, with so much flow as it were of just the nectar that the, the sweet honey of those days dripping out. So um, it, it's, it's a interesting word, but it's an apt description of some parts, some parts of the land of Israel. Okay. Uh, I've lost who I called on. Was Rebecca next? Go ahead, Rebecca. I'll do, I'll do it one at a time. So I don't forget who I'm calling on. Um, I, ha I just had a comment and all the other people, because in, in my first act to say here for everybody to exist, and not one people. So my read of, of all that list was not a warning, but rather justification for everybody can exist without knowing what happens later, you know, for another. That's fascinating, Rebecca. I have never, uh, it's so interesting how conditioned we are to read certain things in certain ways. I've never read it that way. You could, you, there could be a wonderful sermon given um, Dvar Torah on that, that the, that <laughs> the original prediction, as it were, was not, you to the exclusion of them, but you with them, enough space for all of you. That's fascinating. Thank you for that. that that's a beautiful insight. I have no idea what, you know, which, which way on the fulcrum we're supposed to be tilting in terms of the original intent of the verse, but I love that as a hovering possibility. Um, great. Uh, Joel. You, you answered my question, but it was originally, is the vav vav Because Different translations have it past or present or or, um, or future. So it works either way. Right. And you sort of gave a definitive answer without saying that it's actually ambiguous. To me, it doesn't seem ambiguous, but I also know that there are there are places where grammatically it could be both the Vav HaHipuch or the Vav HaChibur, right? Um, are there, does anybody actually have a translation in front of them that reads it in the future tense? Yeah, mine does. Can you read it out? Who, which translation is it, and can you read it? Mine is uh, Saperstein. Okay. Uh, I shall descend to rescue it. Interesting. So, so reading it as a pure Vav HaChibur, connecting Vav and Uh I don't have a JPS. Anyone have an Eitzchayim Chumash in front of them? Can read that translation? Actually, I, mean, I do have it here. I wonder how JPS handles it. 
second. I was reading from the JPS Tanakh, which um, has it in the past. In the past tense. Let me see. I, I assume that the, I think the Etzchayim Chumash has that exact translation. Mm-hmm. Um, I have come down to rescue. Yes. Yeah. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm curious how, does anyone have an art scroll in front of them? Curious how art scroll, uh, art scroll, as we know, almost always follows Rashi in the translation, but there's no Rashi on this. So I'm wondering how that. Yeah, mine, mine is art scroll. What is the article? Oh, that's the Saberstein, right? Okay, interesting. Yeah, you 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 could read it um, both ways, I suppose. Um, reading it as a past tense um, begs more questions on it, but I suppose you, you could you could you could jump over that by just reading it as a as a future. Um, okay, um, go ahead, Joel. If you read it as a future, it implies that he's going down from where he is now. Right. Right now they're in, in Sinai, right? So going down geographically. Right. Right. Uh, right. If, if if the Yerida is a God's, you know, God's presence, I don't know, the land of Canaan into Egypt, or is it a celestial cosmic Yerida from God's abode down here? Um, there's a, it, it's, it's hard to know even, even which descent God is referring to when God talks about a, a God's own descent. Uh, Marshall, is your your hands up from now or from before? From now also. Okay, go ahead. Okay, uh, just back to the word miyad, where I thought before was with power. I want to look again now at, at Unculus, where he says, miyada de mitzra'e. So what he's doing, he's changing it from the land itself, named Egypt, to the perpetrators, the yeah. Egyptians. Yeah. And that's yeah. from the commentary, which I have. Right. And remember that also... Um, you know, we have the vowels of the Torah, halachala Moshe Sinai. We receive it that way, and 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 therefore they're fixed. And yet, Mitzrayim and Mitzrim looks exactly the same, right? So um, it could be that the original uh, Minukad version of the Torah Minukaded it, you know, pointed it as Mitzrayim, but it could have been Mitzrim. So is this Uncleus, you know, kind of subtly telling us the focus should be on the perpetrators rather than the, than the state? Or who knows? Did Uncleus have a version that read it as Miad Mitzrim? Right? That's that's certainly a possibility. Uncleus doesn't come with his own cliff notes. Um, Norman and Rachel, Joanna, Barry. I, I just have the impression that the idea of God coming or having come down is a reflection of a view of the Holy One that's very different from what we have. We all except the idea of there being one true universal God. Um, but it may reflect a time when um, our God was perceived even by the Jewish, by the Hebrews um, as being more of a local deity or our deity. And that, you know, in some places, some other gods may have had some more important influence. Very astute comment, Norm, right? So e- even if we want to lean into the gods, gods and the Torah's own, own, own anthropomorphization of God, you know, God has to speak in language that people can understand. How that happens can be a window into how the deity was understood. So even the notion that one of the ways that God would be anthropomorphized is a descent from this place to there, like, Almost 
like vitiates the notion of hamakom, right? Some of you were just in daily minyan with me. We said that Jonathan Swerdo hamakom inachem right? That notion of the omnipresent. I love that translation. That love that English translation of God as hamakom, the one who is in all places, right? So if if and of course there are many theologies within our tradition. Maybe one God, but many theologies. If one of the ways, or even the dominant way, that one understands God is to be everywhere, then the notion of va'ered not only isn't isn't it isn't apt. It's not even a good anthropomorphization because we don't want to imagine a God of a place as, as if, as if God was, was not in Egypt before God descended to Egypt. So it's, it's a, it's an interesting window um, in, into how the uh, um, Adonai and Elohim um, uh, were, were understood uh, back then, even by the pre- original presenters of the material, Joanna, Barry, Diane, and Larry. And by the way, you know, this is, almost setting a record for the number of hands and questions on a verse before we even got to the commentaries, which makes, which is wonderful, which makes me again, wonder like Rashi, like, where are you? Like, <laughs> what, what are you doing? You're sleeping on the job, Rashi. Go ahead, Joanna. So I wanted to further connect some of the comments that have been made about um, Va'ered and in thinking about what that means in terms of how, God reveals oneself. And in fact, that it is, you know, a form of revelation when we think about that, how it's been used previously in Tanakh. So I believe in the Genesis story, we don't actually see that word, but we, we get some sense of that after, um, Adam Vachava eat from the tree because God is walking in the garden. So obviously God had to have descended in order to be able to be walking in the garden. And then um, in the Tower of Babel story, and also in um, just before the destruction of Stom and Amorah, when God wants to talk to Avram, we see that very root there where God erades, God descends before taking action, um, before revealing himself, God's self to the world. So I think there is some precedent in looking at the use of this word in Tanakh as it this va'ered indicating some form of God now being, and actually what's interesting is in all of those cases, things have gone awry. So that when things are awry in the world, you know, God descends to intervene in some fashion. Um, I also wanted to comment on the word zavat. And the image I had ever, as a kid when I would read this phrase, Eretz Zavat Chalavudvash, of literally a river flowing with milk and honey, which is very interesting in the context of Egypt because anything, all of the produce, anything productive about the land happened on the banks of the Nile River. So I feel like this is a metaphor that relates to where the people are at now, that that's where they see productivity of the land. So using kind of that river metaphor. And the last thing I wanted to comment on was Tova or Chava and how that stands out, because I think usually the normal pairing we expect is Orech Verachav. So now all of a sudden here we see a different pairing where Tova is sort of an unmeasurable goodness and Rechava is a more measurable goodness. We can measure how wide something is. Three for three, Joanna. Be- beautiful comments. On the first one, Baruch Shekivant, um, the, the, the Ramban, which we won't linger on, goes in that direction. It basically tries to link the previous Yiridas or Ba'ereds of God 
uh, into what's happening in the world at that time. So that's that, that's an a, a appropriate um, and traditional linkage. Um, I, I shared your childhood image when I would, um, but before I knew Hebrew well, I I knew land flowing with milk and honey, and to me that was river like. What I had not really attached to until this comment was 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 comparing that fantasy, whether or not that we're supposed to have that image in our mind, with the um, centrality of, of, of the Nile. Um, and yes, um, the, the Tov and Rachav are not a merism, right? They're not the opposite ends of a, of a, single, um, of a single concept, right? They're, they're perpendicular to one another, um, which is, so it's, it's, it's two different ways of describing um, um, the the, ab the abundance of the land of Israel, um, and I love your, I love your framing of it as um, how, do, how did you say it that it's both measurable and unmeasurable? Right. Great, really great. Thank you for those. Uh, Barry, Larry, Diane. So uh, going back to the the land occupied by other peoples, um, I recall an anthropology art exhibit at the LA County Museum a few years ago, and then reading up and later that. These civilizations, uh, the Canaanite civilizations, uh, they had like a two, three thousand year history um, being in this area. That's a long time for a civilization to evolve. But ultimately, uh, the, the land belongs to God. And God is the ultimate land holder. So like the Communist Party, that um, if, if you perform correctly, you, you keep your land. And if you, make them, if you don't, then you lose it. And, um, with God is, and God says later that he's going to drive out these people uh, be, before us. And also we have to be ready to fight when we get there. Um, that that the, 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 their time is up. So the, for for what, whatever sets of reasons in terms of uh, what this, these civilizations are performing, uh, they ha they're not performing the way God wants them to be, and their time is up. And, and, and so, ultimately, we occupy lands um, that are previously occupied. Yeah, great. So, so if, 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 we're, if we allow ourselves to linger in the realm of quote, quote, just understanding the text and, and and trying for the most part to stay out of the very place I went to last time we were talking about this, which is the politics of it. I think you're absolutely right. And it's a great contextualization of what Larry said before, that the that if if God is steward, owner, and therefore profferer of land, then naming the people from whom we're getting it does not downgrade our claim. It actually it it might upgrade, but it certainly doesn't downgrade it. It's that that God is God is determining that this is the time for the transfer. Correct, um, and the, the the problem, right? <laughs> I said I'm not going to go into politics, but to, just to dip in and then dip out. It's both the case. I'd like to think that the non-absolutist, non-fanatical understanding of the Jewish people's connection to the land of Israel throughout history and now represented in, you know, the love of the land then and Zionism now is both connected on some level to this story, which is rooted in God's promise to us and disconnected from a theological argument, right? Once we actually get to a theological argument for why that flag should be there, you know, and, and, and you know, I'm a, I'm a very uh, proud and robust Zionist, you've lost me because because then, then anyone can claim their God is who gave it to them. But at the same time, the 
you know, the, the, the Rambam would, um, would talk about um, one of the proofs for God is the, is, the, is the first mover, right? Someone had to move the first thing that was moved. If you go back through the story of the land of Israel's connection to the Jewish people, it's this. It's cause, cause, because we got there because God wanted to be there. And you, and you can't disentangle that. You just don't want to use that in the, at the UN, right? Um, but part of our nation's story, which has us attached to that piece of land and not Uganda and not Birobijan, is because God wanted us there and God didn't want the Hivites there anymore. And it's impossible to detangle that completely. Um, thank you for that, Larry, uh, Barry. Larry, Diane, Tova. So I know Larry also has something to say, but it's possible to look at this list of, of groups that are on the land as a, in some sense, qualifier um, that suggests that this land is so good because it can, actually can support all of these people. You can think about it as, as just an additional description of how good the land actually is, that all these people are living there and are supported by the land. Uh, I also wanted to point out the fact that in Israel today, one doesn't actually own land, that the land, in fact, is only leased for 99 years at a time. 49. 49? I think it's 49. Okay. When you you buy an apartment, for example, the, the land that it's sitting on is... Is, is not really yours. Yeah, so that first comment is a cousin to what Rebecca was saying before, that the rechava, the, the rechavaness of it is related to the, all those peoples who are listed. Um, and um, yeah, it's, 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 I have to think about um, and maybe do some research as to um, what's, the, what's the true reason why the politics and the government of the state of Israel operates according to that notion of who does and who does not own the land. Uh, I wonder if that also has kind of like subtle or not so subtle theological uh, origins. Um, Can I make a comment about um, uh, the uh, the coming down again, the Ered? Yeah. So um, I know this is a Rashi class and I know that we use uh, Torah Chaim, but Sfaria has many more commentators, including Or Chaim, who I hardly ever look at, but occasionally do. He's got a really interesting point. Why did God come down? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to paraphrase. You can read it in, the, um, in Sfaria. So he came down because he's coming down to, to Pharaoh's level. He didn't have to come down. He could have just said, you're free. And he could have schmutzed uh, Pharaoh, and that would have been the end. But he's coming down in order to engage with Pharaoh. And then Orachim cites Echa Rabbah on Proverbs. And there's a phrase here which goes, Ish Chacham Nishafet et Ish Avil Veveges Veshachak Veenachat If a wise man goes to court with a fool, there's no peace whether the fool rages or laughs. In other words, if you argue with a fool, you're already in trouble. Or, as George Bernard Shaw once said, if you're wrestled with a pig, you get dirty, and the pig likes it. I'm, I, you finished your comment right as I was trying to bring up the Orachim, so we'll be looking at it as you're saying it. Um, is there, is, now that it's up here, is there anything else you wanted to say now that it's right there? Uh, no, I just thought it was an interesting perspective on why the Everhead the yeah. coming down to Pharaoh, and it opens up an entirely new... Uh, uh, idea. Yeah. 
Um, I go in and out. I know you're a Chizkuni fan. I, I go in and out of like favorite Parshanim aside from the ones I almost always look at. Like whenever I'm just studying for myself or preparing a trash, I, I always look at Rashi. I always look at Sforno. There, there are certain like, there, there's certain basic ones, but I, I go in and out of like the next round uh, for a while. It's not, it's not been, it's not been for a while, but for a while I was all Orachayim. I was loving his commentary. I still look occasionally, but I, I don't look as systemically as I used to. Um, and, um, and, uh, and he's, he, he, he writes in a, in a, a pretty plain Hebrew, so you don't have to, you don't, you don't have to gnash your teeth so much of just figuring out the shot of what he's saying. And I appreciate your bringing him in. And it's always interesting to figure, to think when an editor of the Mikra Odkidolot comes to figure out who to put on the page, who gets included, who does not get included. There's some versions of the Mikra Odkidolot that those two words, Mikra Odkidolot, which just means, means the great text, the great readings, is a way of referring to a, a Torah and other commentaries, right? Um, some of them have the Orachaim on the page, uh, and some of them have the Kliakar on the page, uh, and some of them do not. So the, 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 the nice thing about the Torah Chaim that we use is that it's not Rashi script. So for those who can understand Hebrew, but can't read the Rashi script, it's, it's, it's well printed and well annotated, but it doesn't have Orachaim. You have to look elsewhere for it. Um, Diane, oh no, you, you both spoke, right? Okay. Uh, Tova, Rick. Um. I had uh, another thought, which is actually almost opposite of my original one, that listening to uh, people's comments, that perhaps part of the intent in the flowing with milk and honey reference and, and your discussion and Joanne's about the image of, of river flowing was actually an anticipation of the hesitancy of the Jewish people in leaving. We tend to think of yeah, it's the great salvation. They're ready to go. But we know from multiple places that there was hesitancy. And in the desert, they actually complain, you know, why did you bring us here to starve when we had melons and cucumbers in Egypt? That they are in a land that was renowned for plenty and for always, that's where they went seeking plenty when there was famine in the time of Joseph. And so by this image of flowing like a river, right, just like you have here, uh, is in a way anticipating that hesitancy that you're going to a place that will be good for you and will nourish you. An, an, an inducement. And then depending on how much we imagine within the logic of the story, how much of the Israelite wandering in the desert was foretold, right. none of the people who are going to get that message are going to ever taste true. that yeah. land, right? Yeah. So it, so you could you could read it like even... Not cynically, but you know, it, it's the it's the shoehorn to get them out because they might not have gone out otherwise. But it's it's for their descendants to to benefit from. Rick, hi. Um, I wasn't reading ahead because I know we're not supposed to do that. Of but I was I was looking for trope ahead for another reason. But um, I is, I see in verse seventeen, you've got the same uh, nations listed in the same order, and uh, I just thought. I didn't want to wait two months to, to tell you about it because um, I thought it was relevant. So we also have the Zavach Halabudavash there. Um, and the verb there is A'aleh for God um, bringing us up. And Me'oni, yeah, I wanted to, so we're relating that to Marshall with the Yad Mitzrayim. This is Me'oni Mitzrayim. So I just thought I'd bring it up. Yeah. 
Um, I mean, there, there'd be several places in the scene where not only basic concepts are repeated, but word for word, um, uh, they repeated. So yes, so God goes back to listing all these nations again uh, after um, a little bit of a back and forth with Moshe in terms of Moshe's, you know, the first time Moshe questions his own fitness for this task. Uh, Joanna? I just wanted to comment on Tova's um, comment a moment ago about how this verse is anticipating a little bit that, um, you know, the hesitancy of, of B'nai Israel to, to, to leave Egypt and to go into the promised land. We see the real reversal of this and the real demonstration of this in numbers. Um, it's somewhere like chapter 15, 16, 17, when, when B'nai Israel is in one of their rebellious moods and they question Moshe and they say to him, why did you take us up out of the land of milk and honey? Right, where e Egypt is described as Eretz Zavad Chalav Right. right. It's, it's, it, it's, a, it's a wonderful, <laughs> it's a wonderful verse. It's a painful, I, 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 I identify with Moshe so much in that verse and what it's like to <laughs> try to lead people from A to, from a to B. Um, and there, and the, and the, and the invert, the people seeing reality, the inverse of what you think reality ought to be. But yes, Egypt is described by them as Erezabat Chalabudabash. Great. Um, okay. Um, all right. That only took 50 minutes. Well, <laughs> well, well, well done team. That was, that was great. So let's go to the next verse. If there are no other comments, I'm happy to linger, but we don't need to linger. So verse nine, uh, who have we not heard from at all today? Who would like to uh, read? Uh, Rebecca Friedman, do you want to read verse nine? Okay. Va'ata hine sa'akat b'nei Yisrael ba'a elai. V'gam ra'iti et halachatz asher mitzrayim lochatzim otam. Okay. And now, behold, the cry of the children of Israel has come to me. And also, I have seen the oppression that the Egyptians oppressed them. Good. Okay. Um, we've got a new kind of root. We've got lachatz. We'll have to, we don't have to, but we can linger on what lachatz is adding to some of the other ways that the experience of the Israelites has been described. Um, we've got sa'aka again, right? We had a couple of uh, synonyms for their calling out, their crying out, their, their distress. Once again, that, that is brought up. Um, and uh, just to be not only precise um, uh, in terms of note, but in syllable, right? The way this is laned is sa'akat b'nei Israel ba'a elai, not ba'a elai. The stress is on the on the first syllable, not the second syllable. Um, and God is continuing, to, and, and depending on how we understand the va'ereid, I believe that one of the reasons that that would push someone to read va'ereid as vav ha'ipuch, past tense, is because the vi'ata seems to be a, um, a temporal shift, right? So I, God, in the previous verse, have described what has already happened, the ata, and now I'm describing what is about to happen. 
it's a, it's, a, it's a little harder to do that if you have read Va'ered as I will go down. You could, but it's a little bit harder. You could read Ve'ata not in, as time, but as consequence. Um, all right, let's open it up. Who's got a, a comment or a question on any of those words, either in Hebrew or how we're rendering them in English? On this verse, everybody's quiet. You're all commented out. Diane, Larry? Yeah, so now I'm convinced that this is actually a repetition of verse 7, a different version. It's got the confusion between the seeing and the hearing again, where we talked about the fact that God hears things and sees things. Remember, we had in previous verses, um, hearing, seeing, and remembering, hearing, seeing, and knowing. Yes. And here we don't actually have hearing, except it says that, uh, and now I um, came to me the cries, which can only be hearing, but then he sees the lachats. So my two points are, the, the seeing and hearing combined, but also the fact that I'm wondering if this isn't the blending of two different versions and then verse eight somehow coming from one of them. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, good. Uh, Letter Rebecca and then Rebecca. Um, I was just going to comment on Tsa'akat uh, B'nai uh, Israel, the cry of the children of Israel. So just similar to what we saw previously, where it started out as multiple cries, but then it really turned into one united cry, that is, which is what uh, God heard. So here we have the singular cry. Great. And it goes back to, um, if, 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 you, if you go back to verse 23 in the previous chapter, um, when, the, not, when God is not speaking, but the Torah is narrating what happened, there's also uh, um, an interesting play on number there, if you remember. So 2.23 during those many days, the king of Egypt died. Plural, the children of Israel groaned from the work. They, you know, groaned, geshried, some synonym. And then singular, their singular cry went up, not vata'alu, vata'al, to God, min that God heard their singular cry. Um, so there's been a play throughout, both in the narration of the story and now God's describing in our verse of uh, a great group of people, some version of a, of a, of a singular thing arriving uh, up, up, to, up to God. At Sa'aka, not Sa'akot. Good. Um, Rebecca and then Norm and Rachel. I wanted to connect the word lachatz and lochatzim back with the rechava. Mm -hmm. um, I was trying to figure out what what that means in this context because I think of it as pressure or stress, and um, I see that in Unculus he uses the root dachak, and I'm I was thinking that it meant he saw how Egypt had pressured them into a narrow Very good. area. And so going back to the Rechava, it's a real um, opposite, I guess. Great. Good. So again, Barosha Kivant, in the sense that you're on the same wavelength as one of the people on the page who's rarely there. So if you leave, in our, in our it's um, Chumash, not everyone has it. Um, on the top right of page Kaf Chet, um, we have um, a commentator who's uh, given the acronym Reish Chet, Rabbeinu Chananel. 
Rabino Hanel is a very, very early, it's, it's, it's almost, almost pre-medieval, I think 10th century, 11th century, I think earlier than Rashi. Um, and mostly he's known for kind of a, um, a narrative commentary or a, a, a free-flowing commentary and, and almost um, presentation of, of the Talmud. So he's less giving a commentary, more just kind of telling over the Talmudic arguments in his own words. But there are pockets here and there of his commentary on Humash, and both because he's rarely here, so we should read him when he's here, and because you went in that direction, I want to read it. I'll read it so that everyone has it in front of them. So he quotes, I've seen the, let's untranslate it, the Lachatz, Asher Mitzrayim Lochatzimotim, that the Egyptians are lochetzing them, and, and, and we, certainly in modern Hebrew, understand it to be something to do with pressure. Remember, he says, that they got to Egypt as seven, 70 people. And Yosef settled them, the Eretz Goshen, in, in, a, in, in, a, in, a, in their own area, in the land of Goshen. Um, and the the, the, the land couldn't contain them, right? Couldn't, couldn't keep them in. Because they were blessed by God. But the Egyptians, that's the root, right? The Egyptians, and I, I know he's playing on that verse and that word in the previous verse, as you picked up on, the Egyptians did not allow them in the land that could have held them to be rachav, to spread out, to be wide. They, they pushed them, they concentrated them, they ghettoized them, perhaps, right? They took an enormous amount of them and a growing amount of them, and they put them into a place that could not contain them. So it's a very specific understanding of why lachatz is introduced in the verse. It's not just another way of saying things were hard for them. It's, 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 a, it's a geometric confinement. Um, and then he, he, he gives a, uh, a place in the book of Shoftim, the book of Judges that uses lachats in that way. So yes, that's a, it's a, a new and different and a physically uncomfortable way of understanding their predicament. Thank you for that, Rebecca. Um, Sue, uh, and then and I, said, I said Norman, Rachel, then Sue, and then we'll call it a day. Um, in regard to the crying out, I have seen a commentary. I vaguely recall that it was from the from an old United Synagogue Yagada, but I'm not sure, that suggests that um, for oppressed people, it's dangerous to cry out ordinarily, but that a pharaoh had died, and during the period of Egyptian national mourning, that gave the Israelites the opportunity to cry out to God, and that got God's attention because they had to do something on their own, and that was the crying out. Great, great, thank you. Sue, last comment of the morning. And Boker Tov, good to see you. <laughs> um, last comment of the morning, I feel the lachats. Um, so <laughs> in, in modern Hebrew, first of all, Norm, that was really um, that they cried out with the, you know, in, in the midst of the crying out for the Pharaoh. Um, you know, I, I was reading the lachats, and in modern Hebrew, you'd say, you know, and, and the pressure would be kind of pressuring them coming down. And I sort of, as we've been sitting here, been thinking about the lochatim otam. And then, Rabbi, you made that comment about them kind of being ghettoized and pressured because I was thinking to myself, like, the lochets, 
well, at something like this, I was, excuse me, but I was picturing pickles. Like you're going to shove something in a jar and then it's going to be pressured all around. It's different than lochitzalam, which is how you would say it now, like that they pressed them down and they oppressed them from above and it was pressing them down. Lochitz otam is like that. Really interesting. and, and so there's there's just there there is a different connotation to to lochetzotam and not lochetzaleam and um, I think that that your comment about the the kind of ghettoization and that and it was everywhere it was all around them they were like yeah I had not thought about um, I had not thought of comparing it to how it's used in modern Hebrew with a different with a preposition as opposed to a direct object to be lochets something as opposed to lochets on something your description made me think of you know the uh, Luke Skywalker in Star Wars and the trash compactor that is just like you know, getting them from the sides, right? Um, so, so great. So we'll end here and we'll pick up with if there are any lingering comments on this verse, or we'll jump to verse ten, which is finally when Rashi wakes up and, and decides he has something to say. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.